Mr. Kinsella, what is uh, libertarianism? All right. Yeah. Uh, so there are different ways of answering that question, and I can give the most, I think, accurate and precise answer um, from my point of view. Um, the, the conventional answer would be something like we are the political philosophy that opposes aggression or the initiation of force. Uh, but I really believe that aggression is a dependent concept. It, uh, what aggression is depends upon what property rights there are, and all prop all individual rights, all human rights are property rights. Um, so what I would say is libertarianism is a political philosophy. It's one among many. There are other competing types. There's theocracy and um, uh, dictatorship and democracy and monarchy and 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 um, other forms. Every one of these systems has a certain way of determining the assignment of property rights. So it's not like we're the only system that believes in property rights. It's just that every system believes in property rights, but we have a unique uh, view on how property rights should be determined. So I would say that almost every legal system to a degree follows the libertarian view of property rights, which is that when you want to determine who the owner of a resource is, you ask two questions. The first is who had it first, which is called Lockean homesteading or original appropriation. And you ask, uh, did did the who got it from who by contract? Who got it from a previous owner by contract? So basically, those two principles, first use and contract contractual title transfer, are usually sufficient to answer the question who owns this resource when there's a dispute over it. Um, and most systems have to recognize those principles to some degree, otherwise society wouldn't ex be able to exist because people need to be able to actually use resources with some degree of certainty and, and fear from uh, predation by others for society to, to emerge and to survive. But libertarianism is the only one that consistently adheres to those two principles. So that's what I would say libertarianism is. It's the only political philosophy that consistently abides by the first use and the contractual title transfer principles in determining property rights. Got it. So uh, with that, let's go to your libertarian litmus test. Uh, you have nine things that you use to see generally whether or not you consider someone to be a solid uh, libertarian. They are ranked roughly in order of importance. Uh, number one is intellectual property. What is the correct position the correct libertarian <laughs> position on intellectual property. Well, let me say that post. I won't say it was a joke, but um, I was what I was trying to do was list number one, list the the big things we should be concerned about. And most of these, most libertarians are concerned about war and government schooling and things like that. And I was doing that number one to show that we need to include intellectual property on this list. And then I wanted to rank them in order of sort of my my thoughts about the priority or importance of them. Um, although, to be honest, almost any one of them you could argue is the most important one. Like if you could only get rid of one first, you could argue we should get rid of taxes first. You could argue we should get rid of the government schools first or the drug war first you know, or IP. So there's arguments for each. These are not uh, bright things. Um, as for a litmus test, what I was – I was kind of joking that y you can't be a good libertarian if you deviate on too many of these, and a couple of them are just like non-negotiable, like the drug war. I just – there's no good argument for the drug war. It's such an obvious evil. Um, look, I'll, I'll, I will concede to let minarchists in, under our tent, like people who believe in some minor little bit of taxation. I don't think they're consistent libertarians, but I'll grant the term libertarianism would, would – could be extended to cover them, okay? Uh, or if you believe in the occasional war for self-defense, you know, I, I, I can see that, but not the drug war. And I also think IP should be put in that category because unlike all the others, like you could come up with an argument for government schools or taxation or even welfare, you know, um, but you really can't come up with an argument for the drug war or for intellectual property. There are no good arguments for it. And the other thing with IP is that um, unlike all the others, where even a supporter of taxation would begrudgingly concede that we need it, but he views it as a necessary evil. Like ideally, we, we would have a society w without it, but he just thinks, unfortunately, we have to have a little bit of it. But they at least recognize it as an evil, or the same thing with war, right? Um, but with IP, it, it's called intellectual property, and so it's classified as a type of property right, and we're in favor of property rights, and so… 
you think of intellectual property as not a deviation from some ideal, but like as a natural part of the free market, and that's the mistake. That's why it's insidious, and that's why it has so much influence in society that we don't recognize. I mean, it's really pervasive how many types of this mentality of owning ideas, right? The idea that copying what someone does is stealing uh, is permeates all of our society. So it's very insidious, and also the patent system itself does a lot of damage to the human race that I think is not appreciated. That's one reason I have it near the top of my list. Yeah, one of the things that convinced me about IP is uh, one rejection of the labor theory of value by both uh, Karl Marx and Adam Smith, and the idea that your use doesn't exclude mine. So if I have a car and you steal my car, well, I no longer have the car and I was the rightful owner. But if I have a car and you look at it and then just copy it, or even if you just like, I dream of genie, just copy it, you know, b by thinking about it, well, my use is not uh, excluded. So right. that, uh, th that for me was just so mind-blowing. Um, could you give us a brief, I, I know you have a uh, long Mises course on uh, the history of IP, how was this idea started, that this concept started, that you could own ideas and the state would pick some people to have a monopoly over the execution of some ideas that inflicted on the actual tangible property rights of everyone else? Well, I think that what happened was the practice behind it arose for various reasons, which I can summarize. Um, and then later a theoretical edifice arose to justify it, right? Um, so it's not like the, the practice of granting patents and copyrights emerged because people thought <laughs> we have a natural rights Lockean system and we really need to have the, the law do as good a job as possible at protecting um, a, a near anarchist libertarian society. and. And we've theoretically deduced that intellectual property is part of that, so we really need to add these laws to our legal system. It was, it of course, wasn't like that. Uh, what happened was you had basically a private law system emerge naturally in the Roman law and in the con in the common law in England uh, over the last couple thousand years, uh, with some with some deviances from which are largely libertarian, by the way, because they protect property rights, they protect um, um, they 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 pro prohibit uh, aggression, crime. And torts, and they protect property rights, and they respect contracts. Uh, so it's basically libertarian. Um, what emerged naturally in a decentralized fashion in the Roman law system, and then in the common law system in the courts. Of course, you had emperors and legislatures and parliaments who, on occasion, would come in and they would legislate in derogation from the common law rules. Um, you know, they would impose taxation. They would pass special statutes that would take property from its owner and give it to the king or give it to someone else. But by and large, the systems were were, were good and private. Um, but because the monarchs had power, of course, they would they would abuse their power and they would use it for their benefit. So one thing they would do um, is they would they would grant exclusive monopolies to their to their court favorites in exchange for for favors, so they would give a guy the only the monopoly to be the only guy in a certain region who could sell a given product, or manufacture or sell a given product or export it or import it something like that. Now, of course, that that allows him to make monopoly profits. In exchange, he would become loyal to the to the king. He would report on tax dodgers in his area, things like that. So it was one of these things. Um, that practice got out of hand because there were so many monopolies being granted, uh, and they were called patents, letters patent, because patent is a Latin word meaning uh, – patente means open. So it was like an open letter to the world that the bearer could show everyone, hey, the king says I'm the only guy who can do this. Right? Um, I mean lots of, the, lots of the conquering of the territory in the new world was done under a patent grant from the king saying, oh, if you get to America first, I'm giving you a patent. that You get to control this. Area, something like that. So, Parliament reined in this practice because it was getting out of hand in the Statute of Monopolies in 1623. But they, so they basically limited the right of the king to grant these monopolies. But the Statute of Monopolies says, but you can keep doing it in the case of inventions, right? So that's where patents, patents came from the granting of monopolies by the government. Um, to protect people from competition, and that's still what they do. So it's got nothing to do with the free market. Um, now, copyright emerged because originally 
um, it was hard to copy books before the printing press, and so you would have these church-controlled scribes who would copy things, and they would only copy what the church and the government gave them permission to copy, so they could control what printed material got in the hands of the public. <clears throat> when the printing press emerged, that 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 monopoly was in th was threatened, and so. The first thing they did, the government did, was start the Stationers Company, which was about a hundred-year monopolistic guild, which had the monopoly on printing books. And when the monopoly on that expired, um, by then a new industry had emerged of publishing companies who would publish books through the Stationers Company of approved works by authors, and they lobbied the Parliament. And the Parliament enacted the Statute of Anne in 1709, which basically set the stage for modern copyright. So copyright emerged from censorship, and patents emerged from restriction of competition and uh, restriction of property rights. That's how they came about, actually. And, and, then, and, then, and then later, when in the 1800s in the U.S. and in Europe, when the free market, when, when the modern industrial revolution got going and wealth started expanding and technology started being developed at a high pace, um, a lot of free market econo economics started emerging too. And a lot of free market economists started saying, why are the governments granting these monopolies, these patents and copyrights? And they started coming up with an economic case against it Okay, in the 1800s. So there was growing pressure to get rid of patent and copyright because everyone started recognizing these were antiquated practices rooted in censorship and mercantilism. So in response to that, the entrenched interest that had grown up in the meantime, that is the technology and the, uh, and the industry companies that were reliant on their patent monopolies and the publishers who had relied – now become reliant upon copyright, they started – they came up with this propaganda campaign to lobby to keep the patent and copyright law in place, and what they said was it's not a monopoly privilege granted by the government. It's actually a property right, and everyone said, well, what do you mean it's a property right? Because it expires in, in 17 years, and pro pa property rights usually are natural. They don't require the government to grant by legislation, and they don't usually expire in 17 years or 14 years. And so the response was, well, it's a special type of property. It's, you know, it comes from the creation of the mind. This is where the labor theory of value comes in. It comes from the, the creation of the mind, so it's intellectual property. So that's where the that's how the argument came up with, and that's where the concept of IP came. IP came was invented as a concept to justify a mercantilist and a censorship practice, which was coming under intellectual assault. Wow. All right. Uh, the second item in the libertarian litmus test is central banking and the Federal Reserve. Isn't it funny? The first two things are state monopolies, and we're always, you know, accused of supporting monopolies by supporting the free market. What yeah, is the correct? Crazy. What is the correct position on central banking, and why? Yeah, and I would have put taxation first because spending is what gives the government its ability to to exist. But you know, if you think about the U.S. right now, it's the most powerful government in world history, and it spends way more than it taxes. So obviously taxing is not what gives it the ability to spend, or it's not a limit on its spending because of the Federal Reserve, right? I believe. So the Federal Reserve allows it to print money that it doesn't have in, in effect by complicated mechanisms, but that's in effect what it does. So if the Federal Reserve didn't exist, number one… Um, you would have so many problems solved. Governments would be way smaller because they couldn't spend as much. Um, the business cycle wouldn't be as severe as it is, or maybe it wouldn't exist at all, which causes unemployment um, and reduces productivity because of the waste caused by the business cycle because of malinvestment. Um, we wouldn't have inflation of the money supply, so people w would have lots of habits and characteristics in you know, time preference would be lower, productivity would be higher. People would save more. They wouldn't be spendthrifts as much. They wouldn't have to put their money into into crazy schemes like they do now just to keep from losing their money to inflation erosion. You could just keep your money in money because it would it would it would accumulate value every year because there'd be price deflation. Um, so you wouldn't need to go to the stock market if you didn't know what you were doing. Uh, you would need to invest in your, you know your your cousin's crazy business scheme or whatever. Um, and you wouldn't just go gamble your money away in Las Vegas because why not? 
because it's going to be eroded away by inflation in a few years anyway. So it would change the character of the people in every way. Um, so I, that's why I think the Federal Reserve is so important. So basically, um, and the other thing is you would have one world money probably. It would be one one money across the entire world, probably gold until Bitcoin might su su replace it. And that would give that would mean that you would have better international trade, more certainty, um, you know, no more exchange rates, no more fluctuating currencies, no more currency exchange controls. Uh, everything would just be so much better. Um, so obviously, the reason we have it is because the government uses its force to monopolize the monetary and finance function. Um, first by outlaw, first by basically. You know, having banks that are under government regulatory control, allowing them to issue paper tickets that stand for gold, and then gradually they don't stand for gold. They become fractional reserve kind of claims on gold or promises, and then the then the runs happen, and the government backs them up with with insurance to prevent the runs that would naturally happen under a fractional reserve Ponzi scheme, um, and then they. Get rid of gold altogether, and it's just fiat currency now, right? That the government can inflate at will. So all those steps need to be reversed, and basically the Fed needs to be abolished. Topic number three: taxation. What is the correct libertarian view on taxation, and why? Well, I mean that's that's in a way one of the easiest ones on the list, next to the drug war and IP. Um, taxation is simply theft, right? Taxation is when, or it's more technically in a legal sense, it's extortion. The government doesn't usually come to your land and physically take your gold bars from you. What it does is it threatens you with 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 physical damage if you don't comply. So it points a gun at you and says, "Hand over your gold to me, or I'm going to shoot you or put you in jail." Right? So it's extortion, really, or coercion. But any in any case, it's a type of theft. So taxation is simply theft. It's taking private property naturally owned by the producer. Or the person who got it by contract. So I might own gold because I found it in the ground and I mined it myself, and I went to a bank and I pay or a mint and I paid them to mint it into coins for me. Or I might own it because I performed a service for someone or sold them a good and they paid me their coins that they owned in exchange. So I come to own those coins either by first use or by contract, which is what I mentioned before, are the only two principles. By the way, there's a third subsidiary principle, but I didn't want to get into it, but it is um, is restitution. Um, so if you commit a tort or a crime and you harm someone, then you owe them some recompense, some restitution. Um, but you can think of that as like a contract. So like in a contract, I obligate myself to pay you something. So the, the title transfers contractually. Likewise, if I harm someone, now I've incurred an obligation to give them some money to to compensate them for the damage I did. So that's a third way that people can come to own property. You can own it by finding it. You can own it if someone gives it to you by contract, or you can own it if they have to pay it to you because they hurt you. But those are the three only ways. Number four is the drug war. What is the libertarian position on the drug war and why? Well, so again, the, ba the basic libertarian position in property, and by that I mainly mean resources outside of your body. So those are owned when someone – they're unowned at first. They're in the state of nature, and someone starts using them, and they make them owned. Um, unlike those resources, the other type of resource that can be owned is the human body. Now, we are self-owners too. We own our bodies, that is. We own them not because we homestead them, but because we directly control them, and we're, you're the first one to directly control that body. So. It's a different type of argument, but basically the libertarian position has a special rule for for bodies, and in fact, it's the base rule that the other rules, uh, the other property rights are built upon. Because to go out in the world and homestead land, you have to own your body first. You have to be an actor. You have to be a human being walking around, using and inhabiting and possessing a body. Um, so you own that body first, and you own it because it's you, basically. But whatever the reason, the point is you own your body. And what that means is you have the right to decide who gets to use your body. So you can grant permission for someone to use your body, or you can deny them permission. So you can include or exclude them. So I can, you know, I can consent to some girl giving me a kiss, or I can tell her no. And if she kisses me after I say yes, it's not aggression. But if she kisses me and I say no, it's aggression, right? It's using my body without my permission. Um, or if I enter a ring in a boxing match and I someone punches me. 
I consented to it. It's not aggression. But if some guy walks up to me on the street and punches me, it's aggression. So it all depends upon consent, and consent matters because I'm the owner. So only the owner has the right to give consent. That's what it means to be the owner is to have the right to grant or to deny consent. Um, now, the drug war basically treats my body as if the the legal system or the group owns my body because they're telling me I can't use my body to ingest certain drugs. And if I do, they're going to punish it and put my body in jail or or put a bullet in my body's brain. Right. So they're they are acting as the owner of my body as if I'm their slave. But slavery is totally incompatible with self-ownership. Number five, war. What is the correct libertarian position on war? Well, libertarians oppose they don't we don't oppose force and violence per se. We oppose aggression. That is the initiation of violence, which is basically using someone else's property without their consent. Uh, but we don't oppose self-defense, or that is using force against someone who who is trying to or has already used your property without your consent. Um, so self-defense is permissible, although there are some libertarian pacifists. They're welcome to that preference, but they don't have an argument that it's a violation of rights to use force in self-defense. They might not like it. They might not think it's efficacious. They might think pacifism is a better strategy, and I tend to agree with them in many cases, but it's not a violation of rights as some radical pacifists think. Uh, I think the radical pacifists are actually not libertarians because they effectively – put aggressors and victims on the same on the same plane and that's wrong uh, they're not on the same plane they're they're categorically and fundamentally different um, but the problem with war is that it's it's a fight between groups and you could characterize like one nation state versus another having a war or a fight you could say one is the aggressor and one is defending itself but the problem is because the even the defending nation operates on a collective scale it necessarily commits aggression in the act of defending itself because, number one, it has to hurt innocent third-party victims on the other side because you can't just kill the soldiers. And number two, it has to conscript and tax people of, among its own citizenry to fund and support the war, and that's an aggression against the, the people that are conscripted because they're basically enslaved, uh, and it's an aggression against the people who are taxed to support the war because… Uh, you're stealing their property to support the war. So any war would have to be totally voluntarily manned and supported financially and aimed only at uh, combatants who are invading your, your, your land. That would be the only just kind of war. Number six, what is the libertarian position on welfare? Well, obviously it's a uh, welfare uh, done by the government or the state – uh, is illegitimate because it requires theft, right? To, to have welfare, you have to give property or resources to people who didn't earn it or didn't find it. And to give it to them, you have to have it. To have it, you have to take it from someone else. And the state doesn't do anything productive, so it can't earn this resource. It has to take it by theft from people. So the the big problem with welfare, the primary problem, is that it's it it requires theft or taxation to fund it. The secondary problem is that the welfare has all kind of negative effects on the character of the of the population and society and the people that are the beneficiaries of it it you know it induces indolence it destroys cohesion in communities it disrupts the family unit um, it it disrupts time preference um, uh, it, it sets precedents for further government interventions so it's it's bad all the way around and and it, and, it, and it happens in many in it's it's not just naked welfare that's bad it's all types of welfare so you know someone says they're a fireman or they're a policeman or they're a congressman so they they say they're employed and they work for a living but really they're basically getting welfare too because they're funded by tax dollars too just because they're running around the world performing certain motions in order to get my tax dollars doesn't mean they're they're not welfare parasites too now I would no. take the fire. I would take the fireman over the congressman because the congressman does nothing but evil, and the fireman at least does something good sometimes. Um, but they're still welfare parasites. Number seven. What is the libertarian position? The correct libertarian position on government education. That's another one. That's that's a problem. Um, so there's two fundamental problems with government education. Well, at least two. 
maybe uh, number one is um, it requires tax dollars to support it. So um, people are taxed and then that money is used to build buildings and to hire employees who teach your kids. So that's theft. Um, and by the way, if it's done by the means of a voucher system, I, which I used to support in my green days as a libertarian, I'm I'm against it now because the voucher system doesn't do anything to reduce the fact that you have government welfare being used to educate our kids. It just changes the form, but to me the form is irrelevant. They say it makes it more efficient, but I don't know if I want everything the government does to be done more efficiently. I don't want tax collection to be done more efficiently. I don't want war to be done more efficiently. You know, I don't want the drug war to be prosecuted more efficiently. Um, um, and uh, it also uh, 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 the voucher system also expands the welfare because under the current system, at least some people still send their kids to private school. So like maybe 10 percent, 20 percent of the population, they in effect pay twice, right? They're paying property taxes to fund the public schools, the government schools, and then they pay private tuition to send their kids to private schools. So let's say the, the welfare of government education funds 80% of the population now. Under a voucher system, it would fund 100%. So it would expand welfare as far as I can see. And also it would expand the domain of education that government has control over. So the private schools are less influenced by government demands about the curriculum. But private public schools are totally under the control of what the government school boards say has to be taught. So if you expand the, the, the public school system by means of a voucher system, then in effect, all the private schools become turned into public schools subject to the curriculum demands of the uh, and other demands, right? Like diversity and um, uh, all that kind of stuff. So yeah, and government education also makes for a more docile population breeds a bunch of dumb kids who are uneducated and who are uh, believe in collectivism. Um, I mean, l just think about what it's given rise to in this given rise to in this country. The, the elementary and the high school public school systems are so bad that a high school degree is no longer what it used to be. So now you have to go to college just to get educated to the degree a high school kid. Uh, 90 years ago would would have been educated um, and that costs more money and then it gives rise to st students occurring student loans and then the government wants to come in and forgive those loans by raising our taxes right uh, so the whole thing is just uh, leads to one problem after another as Mises said uh, controls breed controls like once you intervene in the market you cause distortions people get around it and then the government tries to 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 come up with patches to stop that. It's like tax loopholes. People find ways to get around them, and then the government patches that loophole, and then people get around that, and it gets more and more complex. Number eight, what is the correct libertarian position on the state? So the libertarian fundamental position, as I mentioned, is we oppose aggression defined as the use of property without consent of the owner where property is determined in accordance with first use and contractual title transfer. Um, so in other words, we oppose aggression of, of all forms that is private or public aggression. That is individual aggression by a private criminal, you know, a crime or trespass uh, or theft or the same actions by a group of people, right? That'd be public or institutionalized aggression. So. If you have a, an agency or an institution, no matter what it calls itself, um, a corporation or a band of, of, of rogues or or a gang uh, or a state or a king, they're not entitled to do to anyone what an individual is not entitled to do. This is what Bastiat pointed out in the law. Um, if one guy doesn't have the right to take my property or to kill me, then a group of people don't have that right because groups only have the rights that their individual members delegate to them, right? So you can't have a group can't have more rights than the individual members can have. Um, so if you understand what a state is, a state is is an organization that does at least one of two things, and in practice, it always does both. Um, it it either takes upon itself the right to tax. Right to fund itself by by taking money from people, which as I've already pointed out is theft, um, or it it monopolizes the 
the provision of legal services and law and order. In other words, it outlaws competition for defense and justice and law. Um, and when when it outlaws competitors, then everyone is forced to use the government for defense and has to pay whatever fee the government demands. Even if it's a fee, it's the same as a tax because the fee bears no relationship to supply and demand because there's only one monopolistic supplier. So the fee is arbitrarily high. In other words, it's it's a monopoly monopoly priced fee, which is the same as a tax. So basically having a monopoly on on law and order and force gives you the the same as the ability to tax and having the ability to tax gives you a monopoly because if you have the ability to tax, you can undercut your competitors because they have to pay. You have to pay them the full price, whereas whereas you, you're forced to pay the price to the government. So you get the services for free. It's the same reason that 80% of the population uses public schools because they're already forced to pay for it. They can't afford the private schools, so they go to the public schools. By the same token, uh, an agency that can tax can outcompete competitors, so it doesn't even need to outlaw them. But in practice, states do both, and both are types of aggression, and both are illegitimate. So the problem with the state is that it's inherently criminal because it inherently commits aggression by its nature, and the libertarian opposes aggression, so you have to oppose the state simply because it necessarily has to commit aggression to exist. Finally, number nine, you say, and now COVID lockdowns. It, it uh, c certainly is a b bit of a jump that uh, we're talking about things like IP and all this other stuff, and now it's like, all right, people have the right <laughs> to leave their house so long as they're not murdering people. S same with foreign policy. It's like, we shouldn't fight uh, in Iraq and Iran and Afghanistan, and now it's like, uh, we shouldn't be funding and uh, siding with al-Qaeda in Syria. It's getting so sad to debate these people. Um, but what, number nine, what is the correct libertarian anarchist position on COVID lockdowns? Uh, yeah, and yeah, I mean, up until last year, we wouldn't have, we wouldn't have added, uh, hold on, let me find my Skype window. Here we go. Um, we wouldn't have had COVID on the list. We, we had the other eight, eight or so things, but, um, COVID is a new thing and the response to it, it seems to be a new thing in, in, in memory of, of modern society. Um, so yeah, the, the response to it, according to at least some of us libertarians, there are some, um, there are some nervous Nellies and respectable types and ass kissers and paranoid types and hypochondriacs and uh, you know uh, bootlickers who have uh, unfortunately gone the wrong way on this the issue. I, I kind of think some libertarians should come up with a list of uh, a list of the deviants here just to shame them. It's, it's shameful some of these guys who pretended to be hardcore libertarians. Even some anarchists are running around uh, uh, kind of half half-heartedly or maybe even more than half-heartedly in support of these lockdowns, uh, I find it disgusting. And uh, it's a sign of one's of one's principle, commitment to principles of liberty. Um, a lot of these guys are just old and old and fat and sick, and so they're kind of worried for themselves. So they, you know, I don't think that's a way to come up with your your own, your your principles for society is uh, that you might catch a virus or a cold. <laughs> because you're you're not in good shape, uh, you know. Um, so, uh, but most libertarians, I think, have been outraged by the lockdowns and and the devastation that the government response has done to our economy, right, and to human life. Um, I I do think that it could be a short term thing, and that by the end of this year, things could be back relatively to normal. Except that the precedent has now been set, and now the next thing that comes along. We're probably going to do it again, maybe even worse next time. That's what worries me. So I guess we can only hope that these pandemics only come along every 50 years or something, but um, but we'll see. But yeah, so I think that, yeah, we can – some of my friends think that the COVID thing should be number one on the list. But um, as I said, you could make an argument that any one of these should be number one on the list. But um, uh, yeah, obviously, for obvious reasons, the lockdowns are on the list. Uh, very often people will say, I advocate socialism, and then you'll give an example of Venezuela, the Soviet Union, Pol Pot, Cambodia, and they'll say, that's not real socialism. To be fair, people will say, I'm anti-capitalist, look at America and all the terrible you know, mistreatment of the Indians and invading countries based on lies, and we'll say, well, that's not real capitalism. So please define for us, what is socialism? Yeah, that's a good question. Um um, 
I think it's important to have clear definitions on contentious issues, especially when the terms have been have changed a lot over the years. I mean, I think Mises pointed out that the or either Rand or Mises can't remember said you know the word socialism could have been a good word for us if it had not been hijacked. Uh, yeah. or maybe it was. I may. I may be thinking. Of, I think Ayn Rand said that about existentialism. Actually, like she could have called her philosophy existentialism if if Nietzsche hadn't taken it. But I think Mises might have said, you know, because we're for so we're for society, we're for being social with each other, or something like that. Um, so I would say there's two ways to think of the word as being defined, and whichever one it is, you can use as long as you're clear about that definition up front. So the classical definition of socialism, I think, is. Uh, and I'm not sure if modern left libertarians would agree with me on this, but I think it is basically the collective or centralized ownership of the means of production. So you view an economy as consisting of different um, types of actors and factors. So human, humans, some humans are workers, some are entrepreneurs, some are consumers in their in their role as consumers. We consume um, some action is labor and some is leisure, right? Some things we do. For consumption, for the pleasure of doing it, and some things we do as a means to getting something down the line. We can call that labor, right? Um, and so, likewise, some goods uh, we use different means or goods to achieve these ends. So, like you have consumption goods, which are things that we consume, like you know, a sandwich or an ice cream bar, um, um, or even a home to a degree. You live in the home, you enjoy the home, um, and other other resources are used as intermediate goods to produce other things you know like a machine a manufacturing machine or um, uh, you know um, the the printing press or um, something that that weaves fabric or a hammer you know those are tools um, and then big factories and big machinery tractors and things like that and those are classified as capital goods that um, and the idea is that the capital the, the means of production, the capital, should be controlled collectively instead of privately owned. And I guess there's different arguments for this. Uh, one is sort of the Marxian exploitation argument that you shouldn't exploit people. The other is sort of this idea that sort of this um, George, almost Georgist idea that um, that land is special, real estate is special, these factors are special because no one creates them. and. Uh, all we do is we stumble across them. We start using them as a platform to do productive things on, and so the the land itself plays a role in the profit you make from a factory or a house on that land, and therefore that percentage of your productivity is not – you don't own that by merit, so it should be given back to the community in forms of a single tax by Georges, or I guess the idea is that that should be owned collectively. You know, by the community, according to socialists. So I would say socialism, the classical definition, is the, is the centralized control of the means of production, and in practice, that means the government or the state. Um, in 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 USSR, Soviet Russia, and in China, and in North, I guess North Korea now, and Cuba to to a certain extent, um, you know, owning the factories and the big industries. Um, now Hans Hermann Hoppe, in his theory of socialism and capitalism. Um, does a more what I call essentialist definition of socialism. And by the way, capitalism would be would just be the opposite of socialism. It would be private ownership of the means of production. Uh, so basically everything in society, not just consumer goods and not just people's cars and houses, but also the factories and the means of production, those are all privately owned instead of collectively owned. Although you could imagine a hybrid where like you have a, a libertarian anarchist free market society um, where uh, the factors of production, the means of production, are owned by groups of people. In fact, that's the way it is done now. They're called corporations, right? So most big-scale means of production and factories are owned by groups. You can call them collectives. It's just that they're privately controlled, and the, gr the group outside that group doesn't have a say-so in what they do, and the government doesn't have a say-so in what they do. So um, – when you have these left libertarians and these mutualists, they envision a world where there's no employee employment relationship anymore, and capitalism is is extinguished, and you have worker co-ops running around everywhere. That's all perfectly compatible with libertarianism and even with capitalism, as long as it's done voluntarily, which is what which is what their big problem is. Because like if they say they oppose the employee employer relationship, 
Well, does that mean they don't like it or they would they don't want to work for an employer? Or does it mean that they would use some kind of social force to prevent that relationship? Like to stop, as Robert Nozick called it, capitalist acts between consenting adults. And if they do that, then they become the aggressors themselves. And if they don't do that, I don't see there's any way they can stop it. Like you're going to have a diverse pluralistic society in a, in a, in a private law society, in a free society. And you might have hippie enclaves of a bunch of worker co-ops that are making hemp baskets, but you might also have um, hyper-capitalistic Randian little enclaves, you know, uh, gulch, little gulch gulches everywhere. You can't stop that, and you wouldn't be able to stop that. You would have your little, your Jewish ghettos here, and your, you know, your 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 Mormon communities here, and your and your and your um, um, uh, the the Mennonites here and and uh, you know the 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 rainbow colored gay groups over here and maybe the you know the pluralistic groups here that are cosmopolitans and secular and don't care I mean you'd have everything even Rothbard talked about this by the way yeah so and even today you have places like uh, in Arizona we have supermarkets like Winco which are owned by the employees uh, stock yeah. owned by the employees and across the street you have Walmart which yeah. has some sort of uh, employee stock option but um, that's not you know that's a little more hierarchical but they're right. both in line with the uh, non-aggression principle and original appropriation uh, right. or you could have like uh, e- even RV companies like Cruise America owned by the employees La Mesa RV in Arizona is uh, like sort of a CEO controlled by the board so it's getting into those definitions so just so we're on the same page well let, let me fin- let me finish one thing though so I oh, was going to say the second way to conceive of socialism is the way Hoppe does in theory of socialism and capitalism he does a more essentialist definition and he tries to look beyond the you know the collective ownership of the means of production and look at what the essence of it is and extend it and maybe make it a little bit more broad and abstract so what he says is the essence of socialism is the institutionalized interference with private property rights okay so in other words he doesn't restrict it only to the means of production or capital goods because really in economics, there's a distinction between capital goods and consumption goods, but in libertarian theory, there's not. Like they're all just private property rights that we that private people should own by the same principles, right? By first use and by contract. So there's no reason to distinguish between them. So when we're talking political philosophy, the essence of socialism. So what he distinguishes socialism from is private criminality. So private criminals or lone individuals or ad hoc criminal gangs. They run around trespassing against property and committing acts of crime or invasion of private property rights. But if it's done on a more institutionalized basis, that is like on a mass scale by a large organization, then that is the state, and that is what socialism in essence is. So basically his definition conflates the state and and socialism and crime. They're all the same thing, uh, or public crime I should say. So. To the extent you have a state, you have criminality and you have socialism, and to the extent you have socialism, you have the state and you have criminality. Right? They're all different aspects of the same phenomenon. Um, and capitalism, as the opposite of that, under that general formulation, would be the the widespread institutionalized respect for private property rights. Excellent. So, uh, are you and? Uh, senior fellow at the Mises Institute. Is that uh, I was I was for about eight or nine years. Um, I, I stepped down from that uh, back in 2013, I believe. But I'm still Got- I'm still associated with them. I still speak at their conferences on occasion. Excellent. I want to ask you about some of the most important contributions of Austrian economists. What do you think is the most important contribution of Karl Menger? Well, I, probably the marginal revolution. Um, you know, just the idea that um, um, uh, value is subjective, and uh, you know, like the the, the classic par- the, the so-called paradox of the diamond. You know, to our to our ears, it, it's a mystery why people call that a paradox. Like, why is it so hard to understand why diamonds are valued more than water? But that just goes to show how pervasive. Uh, uh, the, uh, learning can be like people can learn over time. Well, I think most people now 
understand that severe, strict, centralized government planning of an economy doesn't work. They don't understand that because they've read they've read Mises or Rothbard. They understand that because the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, and we we saw what happened. Now they didn't learn their lesson completely because they're not consistent, and they they didn't read or think about it too much, and we're creeping back towards that direction. But for a good few decades, they learned their lesson, you know, and we kind of begrudgingly learned free markets are good. So likewise, I think most people now. It's kind of obvious because free market economics is basically taken for granted. It's pretty easy to understand why diamonds are worth more than water. Uh, but before that, before the before Manger and Walross and Jevons um, stumbled across this this way of looking at value uh, in the late 1800s, um, uh, you know, it was it was a puzzle. Why, why would someone value diamonds more than water? Because you need the water to survive, but diamonds are, are useless really. Um, but you know the answer is obvious that that uh, the, the diamonds are much more rare, and you value things not at, by looking at the mass of all the things that exist, but you look at the ad additional marginal extra unit that you are considering acquiring or employing. And to get that extra diamond takes is hard because there's not many of them around. But if there's a lot of water, even though a cup of water is essential to you living, you're living in an ocean of it, so you don't need to value it that highly. So I guess that was his biggest contribution. Most important contribution of Bob Bavark. I don't know how to say his first name or last I, you know, name. I, 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 I can't. How, how do you say it? I Eugen Eugen von Bob Bavark, I believe, but my German is 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 non-existent. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Um, I haven't read a lot of Bob Bavark's hardcore economics, um, so I'm going by secondhand reports, but. What I do, I do love his book. Um, uh, I think it's called Shorter, Shorter Classics, and he's got this long essay in there. Uh, it's called something like um, I think it's Chapter Four, um, something about on the classification of legal rights as economic goods, something like that. And it's amazingly, it holds up even to this day because not a lot of people have done work on this. So, to my mind, as a legal theorist. And a libertarian legal theorist trying to build on and incorporate economic insights, primarily Austrian economic insights. Um, that that chapter, it's a long chapter, is seminal because um, um, that's what needs to be developed. And as far as I can tell, no one has really developed it or even expounded upon it very much. And he really got a lot of it right. That's like one of my goals in life. After I get done with the two or three books I'm working on the next few years, I would like to tackle that project. I don't know if I'm up for it, but I would like to because he has a lot of promise in that chapter. So to me, that's his most important contribution from from my legalistic political theory combined with the Austrian economics point of view. Most important contribution from Ludwig von Mises? I think Austrians would differ on this. Um, uh, my opinion is basically his methodology, his praxeological framework, and really as espoused in his last book, which is my favorite of his books, The Ultimate Foundation of Economic Science. To me, that is key because I rely on that over and over and increasingly over the years in my legal analysis. Um, basically, the, the uh, just uh, uh, his way of looking at what human actors are. The distinction between action and behavior, right? The causal realm versus the teleological realm. The fact that we employ means to achieve ends. The distinction between that. All the all the implied categories like opportunity, cost, uh, profit, and loss, um, time preference, and uncertainty of the future. All those things are so fundamental to me and so useful as a as a as a heuristic way of of, of thinking about. Uh, social relationships. Um, now, other Austrians might focus on his other achievements, which would be um, his monetary theory, his develop his his views on the Austrian business cycle, uh, and in monetary theory, his regression theorem as well. Um, but to me, it's his methodology. Most important contribution from Friedrich Hayek. You know, I'm not. I got to say, I'm not a Hayek. I'm not a big Hayek fan. I find his work murky. I find him to be a dilettante. I find him, um, um, from what I understand, he was best. So the, the classic, the classic, or, or the typical uh, 
line on Hayek by the hardcore Rothbardians and Mizizians is that to the extent Hayek was good, he was just repeating what Mises did, like the business cycle theory. And to the extent he wasn't saying what Mises said, he was wrong. Um, and I think the one exception to that, from what I understand, is his capital theory, um, which I haven't read. I've heard that is very good, and that is that is original. Um, but yeah, to the extent he's repeating what Mises did, I, I find Mises better. Like on the knowledge problem, I think he goes astray with the knowledge problem. I, th I don't agree with his knowledge way of – like the calculation problem of socialism. I think Mises' way of looking at it as a problem of property rights. Like if you don't have property rights in a free market, you can't have free market prices emerge, and there, then there's no means of comparing heterogeneous projects on the market. It's that simple. Um, I mean simple after he said it. Before he said it, it was it was hard to figure it out. But once once you say something brilliant and obvious, it's just like the, the subjective revolution, right? Or, um, but Hayek's thing about how knowledge is dispersed and all this stuff, I just I think it's it's murky and and ambiguous and um, and not rigorous, and I think it's actually incorrect. Um, and then of course on political theory, he dabbled in lots of things later, and I mean his writing is. I just don't like it. I mean, I, I, I slog through law, legislation, and liberty, and the Constitution of Liberty. Um, he he basically became a welfare statist uh, after he left Mises's orbit. I mean, he's in favor of welfare, and you know, as long as the law is so-called general, he's not opposed to it, even if it's conscription or welfare or regulating businesses. So he's not a libertarian at all. I don't know why people think he's one of us. He's not a really an Austrian in the Mises sense, and he's not a libertarian. So, take Mises, take Hayek off my list of uh, of, of Austrian greats. Murray Rothbard. <sighs> Probably the stuff I like to do, basically libertarian legal theory. I mean, I think he did a good job of restating a lot of Mises's economic framework in a kind of different language, a more Aristotelian language. Um, as far as improvements on the economics, I think it might be basically the antitrust stuff. Um, like Mises was a little wobbly on, on on monopolies and antitrust, and Rothbard improved that, and then Hoppe improved that as well. Um, um, but he was basically just really sound and Misesian on economics. But on on, I think so. He combined radical Austrian free market economics with Ayn Rand's kind of individualist individual rights approach. And then he combined that with a an anti-statist radical anarchist approach, um, and so it was just his kind of overall consistent worldview, um, kind of a, a multi-directional attack on the state and on aggression. So, like the ethics of liberty is probably his best work um, in political theory for me. Um, for a new liberty being second, and in economics, I think my probably my favorite work by Rothbard in economics is the um, I keep forgetting the new title. It was called the logic of the logic of action one and two, uh, but it's hard to find now. But they they republished it. I think it's called Making Economic Sense. They republished it uh, under a different title for copyright reasons or something like that. And that one's available online. So that's like a really good, so a very large and very good overview of his of his economics from methodology to practical applications. And another lost classic is uh, the Free Market Reader, which was written by Rockwell and Rothbard, and was basically an edited selection of their short articles in the Free Market. Newsletter, which the Mises Institute used to publish years ago, they're kind of more elementary. It's more on the line of Hazlitt's Economics in One Lesson, but that's a really good little book too. Walter Block. Block is just a really good, consistent uh, libertarian who has innovated and pioneered in, I think, both economics and um, libertarian philosophy. Uh, he's written so much in economics, I couldn't begin to say. I mean, he's written really pioneering things on blackmail theory. Um, also on this this issue of the optimal supply of money, which I actually disagree with him about. I, I take Mises and Rothbard. Like I think the optimal supply of money is whatever it happens to be, and I think increasing the supply of money never does any good. Not that I'm against it legally. Like I think if people might find new gold, they have to be permitted to do it. But still, I think that's bad because it, it causes inflation and wealth redistribution, and it doesn't increase wealth in society. Uh, Walter argues otherwise in an intriguing article with Bill Barnett. 
William Barnett. Um, but on political philosophy, so his blackmail stuff and his uh, um, pushing the borders of lots of controversial areas like in his defending the undefendable uh, volumes one and two, and I don't remember if there's number three out, but uh, defamation law. Uh, and on punishment theory, he came up with this thing called two teeth for a tooth, which is sort of like a, um, um, a lex talionis or a retributionist uh, view of punishment theory, which Rothbard later incorporated into his own stuff. Now, I disagree with Walter on a few issues uh, like a voluntary slavery, things like that, but he keeps pushing the boundaries and trying to apply basic libertarian ideas or principles to exotic scenarios as much as possible, more than anyone I know. Uh, Bob Murphy tweeted out an article about two guys who got arrested for shooting each other with bulletproof vests on, and Bob Murphy was like, uh, uh, Walter Block still unavailable for comment, or he's going to be like uh, uh, assisting the attorney. And it's so funny because the book was written in 1974, Defending the Undefendable, and it's yeah. so good that it's yeah. worth referencing commonly in the year 2021. That's how much I, I uh, recommend a uh, excellent book like that. Yeah, and I think to maybe to Hayek's credit, I think he praised that book. Or may, I don't know if it's Hayek or Friedman or someone like that, but they said oh, this is a bracing. I mean, the thing is, to us, if we read it now, us radical libertarians, it's like all obvious. But when he wrote it at the time, it was scandalous. That's why the Randians hated him, right? Because he's, oh, he's trying to he's trying to glorify the worst things in society or whatever. It's like no, he's trying to he's trying to defend the hardest case because you know the adage hard cases make bad law. Not if you're a consistent libertarian. The hard case is you still stick with your principles. You know, you defend the worst among us because they, they're the ones they come after first, right? Um, yeah, that's uh, that, that's pretty rich for uh, the Randians to say that uh, he's uh, engaging in things that uh, m make us look bad as I, they ju as they justify the existence of a state. Refer to Iran as a terrorist nation. Refer yeah. to Japan as an evil empire that uh, should have been nuked three times if that's what it took. Uh, and then Yaron Brook is like. Well, so what if they were civilians? They weren't trying to overthrow their emperor. Yeah. They were basically yeah. complicit. That's it's horrible. like, what the hell happened to individualism? Yeah, and also, <laughs> you, yeah, you're I mean, just they, saying that. I mean, they support you know what we did to the American Indians because they're savages and they didn't really, they weren't really civilized. They didn't own property. Uh, the, the American oil companies have the right to take the oil from force from Arabia because they're savages and you know it was our technology that did it. Uh, almost like an IP claim, almost like what Rourke used to blow up someone else's private property, the Cortland Homes Project and the Fountainhead and an act of IP terrorism. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's rich. I remember one time about 15 years ago, I was with Walter at a Mises thing, and uh, he he gets gleeful and happy when you give him a new uh, – He would, you know, I was testing his kind of crazy theories, and I said, okay, what if you – what if the Hulk picks Sue up? And throws her like a missile at Jim. So Jim has no choice but to use a baseball bat to knock her out of his path. Otherwise, she will hit him and kill him. But she's totally innocent. But the Hulk picked her up and threw her. So he loved that example. So he wrestled with that one for years. <laughs> well, uh, you, you should uh, check out uh, Defending the Undefendable 3, uh, the working uh, chapters he has for it. It includes... <laughs> It it includes cannibalism, so uh, I'm, <laughs> I, I'm I'm really yeah he's looking he uh, he uh, I think he put intellectual property in number two or he might do it number three but uh, the the one issue I think a lot of libertarians are afraid to tackle is is this age of consent for sex thing because you don't want to get accused of pedophilia and all this you know so people are afraid to touch that one I don't know if he's ever touched that one but uh, and I've got to go about about three or four minutes by the way okay um yeah well. Isn't that sad? We're walking on eggshells, afraid to be called pedophiles, while talking to people who uh, justify the mass murder of children through bombing and sanctions. It's it's yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. Um, final question. Most uh, important contribution of Lou Rockwell. Oh, you didn't get to hop up. That's interesting. Um, <laughs> I thought Hoppa would be the you, final. You one. and I spent uh, the, our first discussion all on Hoppa, so I didn't do it. Okay. Uh... And Hoppe has so many. Uh, I plan to write a – I hope to possibly write a book someday, maybe a 100-page precis, uh, an overview of all of Hoppe's work um, if, I, if I'm up to the task and if I finish some other projects. Uh, Lou Rockwell, I suppose, founding the Mises Institute is his greatest accomplishment. Um, uh, for I mean 
not to not to criticize it at all. I don't think it's as central now as it used to be because there's so many more uh, outlets and avenues, which is good. Uh, the Libertarian Party's bigger. There's chapters. There's Mises Institutes all over the world, and there's other groups that are free market oriented as well now. But for a, for a while there, uh, I don't know, for a good 20 years, 15, 20, 25 years, it was like the prime, the premier source of solid Austrian economic thinking and radical principle libertarian thinking, um, and they had an, a, a, an ahead of the times website with tons and tons of materials free online, which was a novelty at the time, which was bold, right? Which was done sort of at Jeff Tucker's initiative, and sort of at my <laughs> IP ideas kind of I think nudged Jeff to do that to a degree. Um, but so I think Rockwell's founding of the Mises Institute was. Uh, I mean, he's done lots of amazing things. He's written lots of great things, published lots of great works, um, supported lots of important thinkers. But I'd say the Mises Institute by far. Excellent, Mr. Kinsella. Thank you so much for your time. The book is Against Intellectual Property. From gosh, what has it been? Eleven years? Twelve years? Almost twenty, I think, and uh, I'm going to do a, a, a new book in about a year called "Copy This Book," so it'll be a new one from scratch. So it'll replace that one, but uh, yeah, about twenty years ago. Excellent, and the new one out soon as law in a libertarian world. Mr. Kinsella, thank you for your time. You're welcome, and call me Stefan next time. Will do. <laughs>